I want to invite you, if you have a Bible handy, to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, and uh, as well, the study sheet in your bulletin has that text from Mark on it as well, so you could go there. Uh, We'll be in other places in the Bible this morning, but that will be uh, one place that will be helpful to you. This morning on Easter Day, we get to join thousands and thousands of others across this country and around the world, all the different time zones and and so on, people celebrating, acknowledging, remembering the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Next Sunday morning, of course, in Orthodox calendar terms, it's Easter for the Orthodox crowd. But between these two Sundays, thousands and thousands of people, one way or another, in some cases people of faith, in some cases people who are curious, in some cases people who are maybe, maybe a shrug, who knows, it depends on where we're all at on that but acknowledging, nonetheless, an event in history that changed the world. I read this week a blog, something by that same title, the event that changed the world, and I want to read you the first paragraph of this, just looking at the impact of the resurrection of Jesus and Christianity as a whole on the world. The writer says this, It is Sunday, April 5th, A.D., 33. This day will change the entire course of world history more than any other day before or after, though only a handful of people will know this by day's end. In an ancient, arid, near eastern city, one singular event will occur this day, unleashing a movement so compelling, so enduring, so influential, so unstoppable that 2,000 years and billions of adherents later, it will still be growing faster than ever. Well, the mighty empire that witnesses its birth will long lay in ancient ruins. This movement will shape nations, span oceans, birth universities, launch hospitals, transform tribal peoples in the world's remotest places, and be spoken, read, and sung about in more languages than any other religious movement by far. That singular event, the body of Jesus of Nazareth, will exit his tomb. And the writer is right. Since that moment, that morning 2,000 years ago, people have been talking about this all down through time. And you're here to mark that day. This morning, there are a couple of things I'd like to do. I'd like to read the account of that first Easter from Mark 16 and talk a bit about that. And then I would like to talk a bit about Christ as the Lamb of God, and basically why that Easter story matters. We'll talk about what it says, and then why it matters, and I'll ask you to think about why it matters to you. So there's the agenda for the morning. How's that? But I would like to pray for us. We need God's help in this matter, and uh, it's good that we ask him for that. So join me, please, as we pray. Our Father, we come to your word as always acknowledging our need for you to work in us. The Bible says of itself that it is a book like no other, a book that comes from you. And so it is right that we would ask you by the power of the Spirit of God to so work in us that we would hear it and understand it, and then by your grace alone, believe it. So our Father, we come to you and ask for your help now. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I want to read that account from Mark 16 as there it is in front of you, one of the many gospel accounts, but telling the story of that first Easter. Mark writes this. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for fear and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So writes Mark. Well, I have there in front of you on that study sheet a few comments about this. One writer calls the resurrection of Christ a necessary and crowning credential, noting that without Easter, there is no Christianity. Uh, That would be Doug Gruthus, and he wrote this book. Um, He's commenting on the resurrection of Jesus. I have uh, read and heard those who would say, you know, smart people out there really doubt the resurrection. There are smart people in this world who doubt whether the Bible is even true. And that would be true. That would be correct. There are a lot of smart people who would say that. May I also say there are a lot of other smart people who believe it's true. Some of them have written books. And I brought a few because some of you, some of you like to study. I'm serious. Some of you are readers. And if you, if you're a person who's smart enough to doubt, then I think you should do your homework. I really do. I think you should read both sides of things. I try to do that myself. I try to read on different topics. I try to read both from adherents and the naysayers in their own words. I don't like reading just what everybody says who agrees with everybody else. Uh, I like to read the other side, too, in their own words and evaluate and think. So um, here are a few that I think if you're a person who says, "Ah, I don't know about all that. Well, then pony up and do some little bit of research here, friend. Here are some you might think about. Doug Gruthis, yes, uh, Christian apologetics. Uh, This is from um, a branch of theology that is called apologetics, which is a a reasoned defense, a reasoned explanation. Um, Mr. Ph.D., University of Oregon. I don't know. Can anything good come out of University of Oregon? But (laughs) as a Husky fan, I digress. But he's got a good section here on the resurrection of Jesus. You should take a look. Um, That's a good book. Uh, This is a good one as well. William Lane Craig called Reasonable Faith reasonable faith. And he deals with all kinds of things like, is it reasonable to look at this ancient book, a bunch of guys, you know, put together and copy down to, and believe it. I mean, like believe it. Is that reasonable? He'll answer that for you. He'll help you think about it. I think you should read this kind of thing. Uh, Here's a book. It's referenced on the back of your bulletin in the article that's there called cold case Christianity. This is written by a guy who cold case homicide detective of many, many years who wondered if perhaps he could take the same principles he applies to cold cases and apply them to a really, really cold case. 
a couple thousand years ago. Can you believe the witnesses? Do these guys even know what they're talking about? What are the things I would look for if I were interviewing these people? He's got some very helpful chapters on the believability of the Bible and reasons to believe it's true. Pretty good book. This guy, well, William Lane Craig uh, writes now with another, another gentleman. This book entitled God is Great and God is Good, subtitled Why Believing in God is Reasonable and responsible. How about that? And of course, a chapter on the resurrection, ironically. Yeah, tracing Jesus' resurrection to its earliest eyewitness accounts. And he talks about whether you should believe it or not. This chapter included in this book, it's kind of an anthology. He's quoting this guy, who's my final one, (laughs) Gary Habermas, very smart guy, uh, a whole list of degrees after him, uh, Department of Philosophy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he also has another angle on things. His book is entitled The Risen Jesus and Future Hope. He's a theologian of many years who comes with a personal angle, too. Because in his 40s, he said goodbye to his wife of 20-some years, 43 years old. He was left as a single dad with four young children as his wife was diagnosed with cancer and died four months later. You think the resurrection matters? Suddenly, the stuff that he could philosophize about and write books about and think about in a classroom, no, all of a sudden, it gets very, very personal when it enters into your own living room. So uh, he's a voice you should listen to as well, both from an educated angle and also from a personal angle, because he brings the two together. These are, just, these are just books written by some really smart people who say, no, but not so fast in dismissing this whole deal. Not so fast if you're a, a person who would consider yourself kind of a cynic. Not so fast if you doubt whether an ancient book could actually be true. Here are a few voices I think you should listen to. Well, I list all of this because, as you see on your study sheet, that second little bullet point, I believe this. If Jesus came merely to make us all feel better as we ride this small speck of planetary dust, that's Earth, into an ultimate sea of cosmic nothingness, then this whole thing is kind of a bust from the start. In other words, if Christianity, as Karl Marx once famously said, is merely an opiate for the masses, if it's just giving you a hug before the darkness settles in, you know, seriously, why would you waste your time? As others have said, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Well, the Apostle Paul understood that sentiment. I'm not saying something out of turn. He said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is is vain and your faith is vain. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's the Apostle Paul who says, if this whole thing isn't true, he's, in, he's discussing that in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is, if, if has not been risen, raised from the dead after all, you know, why, why would we sit here? Why would we sit here and think like this? We are of all people most to be pitied. Well, I look at the account we read a few moments ago, and I want to make a couple of comments about well, things that would lend themselves toward the truthfulness of the biblical account. And I I step into this field knowing we're just going to barely brush the surface, but I do it anyway. But we read Mark's account that you understood, I know, uh, the story of that first Easter. A couple of things that suggest its truthfulness. All right? A lot of other things we could look at, but I give you these. First of all, the first visitors to the tomb are ladies. Ladies, I apologize, ladies. I don't intend that as an offense, but a matter of historical fact, in the first century, Ladies, women, were not considered to be credible witnesses in a court of law. Did you know that? 
So in other words, the point being, if you were going to make up a story and like, you know, fool a bunch of people, hopefully have somebody buy in and fool the masses, the last people you'd have go to the tomb first would be ladies. They're the least believable in that culture. You'd have some, you know, some good strong men go. They can certainly tell truth from error, right? We men, we know things. No, this writer, the only reason they would have ladies go first is if the ladies actually did go first. Uh, To those who read ancient accounts and look for truthfulness, the fact that the first visitors were ladies is a mark of its truthfulness. Second, as we see in verse 1, the ladies were coming bringing spices. Why is that significant? Well, they were expecting to find the dead body of Jesus, their friend. That's why they were going. They were following the ancient burial custom of the day. Uh, If you're familiar with all of that, there were not places as we have around us to care for people we love when they die. You did it yourself as a family with friends. And so you would anoint a body with all kinds of spices and prepare it and wash it and and wrap it for burial. The the spices were intended to offset uh, the smell of decay, frankly. So they're coming expecting to find a dead body. Had there been some rumor among the disciples, some plot to steal his body, start this big movement, you know, uh, fool everybody. Had there been this plot, surely these ladies would have figured that out. The group was kind of cohesive. They hung out together. No, these ladies were fully expecting, like everybody else, that Jesus, their friend, had died, and he was buried, and that's where he would be lying. But they were coming that Easter morning to finish the task. Jesus had died so late in the day, they had not had a chance to finish that process. And they're coming to, to finish it up. They bring, they're bringing spices, expecting to find a dead body, not an empty tomb. And then my third little point here, when they get to the empty tomb and they see this angel, they're alarmed, certainly at the sight of an angel, terrified at the thought of resurrection. And they run like scared rabbits. I realize that's the first time I've ever used rabbits as a fill-in on sermon notes. And that's a little jarring. You're used to Jesus, God, and the Bible. But there's more than that. So rabbits. I know. They're alarmed. My point is this. Sometimes people think about those who lived a long time before us and assume that as pre-scientific people who didn't even understand germs yet, that the idea of somebody rising from the dead is kind of like, well, you know, sure, why not? You know? People rise from the dead. No, they don't rise from the dead all the time. And people have known that for a very long time. I'm simply saying these were not easy believers. As soon as the angel said he's risen from the dead, they didn't go dancing out of the tomb, you know, believing it yet. They're scared, terrified, running for their lives. This is what's happened. What is going on? How can this be? No, these are not easy believers. They're skeptics from the word go. And they're not alone, by the way. To read the rest of the Bible accounts is to find a lot of people who were skeptics, including some of Jesus' closest followers, saying, come on, come on, unless I see him. You remember Thomas? Unless I see those marks of the nails. You guys can tell me all you like. He rose from the dead, but I'm not having it. That was Thomas. He did us all a favor. He stood in that place that some of you might be in today in saying, I just, I don't know about that. That was Thomas. Well, the story, of course, uh, goes on. All these details you can look at, and I just touch on those issues of truthfulness. A lot of other people have written much uh, on that topic, reasons to believe that the Bible actually is telling truthful account for my witnesses. I want to go to that next page. I want to talk about the meaning of this day. Christ came as the Lamb of God to take away sin. This is a major assertion of the Bible. When we talk about this week, Holy Week, Good Friday, of course... um, 
preceded by Palm Sunday, and then we come today to Easter, there's a lot of, of good theology wrapped up in these celebrations. And if I could ask you to come back with me mentally, you just listen to these texts and remember the stories with me to the degree you know them. I realize we come at this from a whole lot of different places, and that's, that's just fine. In the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, there's a story told about the ancient people of Israel who at the time were captives in Egypt. And they were there for 400 years, and things weren't looking so good to get out of there. And then God raised up a deliverer by the name of Moses and prepared him through a wonderful story to be a deliverer of God's people. And God was going to do that through a series of 10 plagues. You remember some of these if you know your history and you know movies and things like that. These, these plagues of Egypt, darkness and hail and all kinds of things that were mocking. They really were. They were mocking the gods of Egypt. If you study history, you realize that the plagues of Egypt were making fun of the gods of Egypt. You guys think you're pretty powerful, huh? Watch me turn the lights out. Things like that. They're mocking the gods of Egypt. And then that 10th plague was, was the most striking of all because it involved death. It did. It involved death to enter the homes of those who said, yeah, I don't think so. Okay. So God explains, he tells the whole plan ahead of time. He says, here's the deal in every family of faith, you're going to believe this, get on board. If not, you know, take your consequences in every family who believes you get yourself a lamb and you bring that lamb into your family for this period of time. All right. There's a reason for that. Get familiar with this little fuzzy thing, kind of cute. Well, guess what? This little lamb is going to protect you. He's going to be the one who dies in your place. Okay, it's, it's, it's laying the groundwork for Jesus who would come later. So this little lamb on the night prescribed was to be killed. It's blood collected and the blood was to be placed on the doorpost on the side and the top. Interestingly, if you can think of a cross, pretty similar. Then they were to celebrate an evening called Passover and of course celebrated to this day. The name Passover, where did that come from? Well, I'll tell you because that night as Families gathered to, to follow the plan that God laid out. And the houses marked by the blood of the lamb. They were to stay inside. Other families who say, I don't believe that stuff. Stop it. They were not protected by the blood of the lamb. And the Bible tells how that night God caused what's called the death angel. Can you imagine? Death. It says to pass over. That, hence the name. To pass over. And those houses that were protected by the blood of the lamb, houses of faith, were kept safe from the death angel. Those other families that say to you, whatever, no, their firstborn died. Huge consequences to unbelief, as there, by the way, still are consequences. Those families were marked by the blood of the Passover lamb. And of course, every, every year since, uh, Jewish people have celebrated Passover. That's what they're remembering. A lamb who was slain, the blood protecting those who believed. That's the idea. Now, as you move through the Bible, there are all kinds of references to lambs and to the coming Messiah as the Lamb of God. Isaiah 53 uses that analogy. We read that in its entirety, Good Friday evening, as we remembered the death of Jesus. The lamb led to slaughter. Later, verse 7, I think it is, as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth, the prophet wrote. Then John one twenty nine, the story of John the Baptist, the beginning of John's gospel 
You remember that striking moment as John is preaching. He's got people down there at the Jordan River, and there's this crowd. And here comes Jesus, and it's like, if you can picture it, John stops his preaching, and he says, look, behold. That's what behold means. Look, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's pointing to Jesus. It's the Lamb of God. And everybody, Jewish crowd, they knew exactly what he meant. The Lamb of God. We know about lambs. And John says he's the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world, which is tremendous news if you're a sinner. It'll make you yawn if you don't think you are. For every person who knows that he or she has done wrong. I don't mean just like mistakes. We call them mistakes a lot. I made a mistake. I understand. We make mistakes. But you know, the truth is, there are times that we do wrong, and it wasn't really a mistake. Come on. We said it, and we, we meant it. We thought it, and we enjoyed it. We went there again, and in our heart, went, yeah, shouldn't, 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 but you didn't leave. Yeah, there are mistakes we make, and there are things we do on purpose. Yep. The Bible says every one of us, every one of us, from the time our little lives begin, we, we have a thing in us that's a sin nature. We just do. Nobody had to teach you to take the toys from the kid in the nursery. You did it automatically, right? Yeah, we're little sinners. And it, it gets worse because the Bible describes sin not only as the stuff we do that we shouldn't, it's the stuff that we should have done and we don't. Yeah. The most important thing, of course, Jesus, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment of all? He answered it by saying, the great commandment is this. You shall love the Lord, your God with what is it? Yeah. All your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind. And of course, the second commandment, similar, love your neighbor as you do. In fact, love yourself. Don't fool yourself. You do love yourself. The first commandment, love the Lord, your God with all that you have. And frankly, I don't do so well with that either. With every breath I take, with every beat of my heart, it's him first. And if you're at all like me, with most beats of my heart and most breaths I take, it's, it tends to be me first. I know you're not nearly as corrupt as your pastor. I get it. I know. I know. Yeah, huh? you should laugh. No, we, we you know, we, we mess it up. We mess it up by mistake and we mess it up on purpose. The Bible says Jesus came as the Lamb of God. To pay a price you could never pay. You and I, you know what? You and I could never be good enough. If you started right here today, this is what the Bible tells us. If we started right here today and just, you never did anything wrong. You just loved God forever. How about that? Starting right now. Amen. So be it. Never sin again. You still couldn't earn heaven. Did you know that? Because you've already messed it up. As have I. Yeah, Jesus, Jesus. That's why the message of Jesus is so critical. Jesus came as the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. He died in our place. Now, Peter, you see that fourth text there under that heading, Jesus came as the Lamb of God. Peter says, 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That is, when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible tells us he died in our place. When he, he, we paid the death penalty for sin, he paid my death penalty for sin. So I could be forgiven by God, as, as can you. Now, that third section, then, Christ, the Lamb of God, will be worshipped forever. I want to 
turn over in my Bible. You may not have it in front of you. That's all right. To the text that Pastor Tyler recited for us a little earlier, Revelation 5. We've been visiting here this week, last Sunday on Palm Sunday, looking at the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, Mark 11, and the first part of Revelation 5, Friday night, Good Friday, part of Revelation 5, along with the Gospel of Mark again, and then today, Mark, or Revelation 5 is a, is a worship service. It's like this big scene in heaven. It's hard to imagine. I mean, the Super Bowl of all Super Bowls, massive crowd, thousands upon thousands, myriads and myriads, and it's a worship event. It's, it's pretty cool. And I, I try to picture what it'd be like to be there. What, what is this like? And Revelation 5, now a couple things I, I give you there on your study sheet. Uh, at the moment in Revelation, as it unfolds, there's a scroll of, of there's a scroll introduced with seven seals on it. It says you can picture the melted wax and a you know the old Roman type seal. Some of you do this today with arts and crafty type stuff, right? Wax and a seal. That was, that's the idea. And in that scroll, as we saw last week, it's like the future of planet Earth at that moment. And and the question is asked: Who's worthy to open this up? Who's worthy to unfold the future? Who's worthy to hold this in his hands? And the text says nobody. No one is. They search heaven and earth, the universe abroad. No one's worthy to open the seals until, until they come across Christ, who alone is worthy to unfold the future as your life, by the way. Those seven seals as are opened in the chapters that follow all bring judgment on planet earth. Okay? They do. If you'll read chapter six and beyond. But in this chapter then, Christ, Christ is recognized as the one who is worthy, the one who has been slain. And you see this repeated in chapter 5, verse 6, the lamb who had been slain. It's looking back to the crucifixion. It's remembering redemption. Verse, verse 9, again, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God. This looking at the work of Christ all the way through eternity. Now, this, this moment in heaven, this, this amazing worship service, uh, along with you, I often have questions about heaven. People ask questions about heaven all the time. Um, I do too. In fact, there, there are more things that we don't know about what that's like to be in the presence of God than we know about what it is like to be in the presence of God. People ask about what we'll do and how it's going to work and like forever. Will we ever get bored? Things like that? No, I think is the answer to that. But there are a lot of questions that people have. Um, I have on your study sheet here, parents have been saying to their kids for a long time, someday you'll understand. I think heaven will be like that. Someday we'll understand. Um, I was reflecting on that. One of you will know who you are because you're in this room. We had a conversation recently parent to parent where said parent other parent was commenting on her daughter who's now up a lot at night with little kids little kid singular and she was bemoaning that her poor daughter is so tired and I was smiling I know it's the dad thing in me and I said but isn't that wonderful haven't you been saying that to your kids for you just wait till you have kids you just yeah uh-huh. I hope you have a little rabble rouser because I know parents say that if you're you know kid in here. Sorry, but your parents do talk about that when you're not there. Uh, man, someday they'll get it. Well, I, I suspect that's true with heaven. Someday, someday we'll get it. But this, listen, this part is very, very clear in the Bible. Well, there's a lot of questions that remain. This is true. This is clear. This moment, this worship server, who's there? 
Well, it mentions angels. It mentions all these creatures and elders and so on. And then, and then it, verse 13 speaks about every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. The Bible is really clear that those who are there are those who here have trusted Christ as their savior. It didn't say live a perfect life. It didn't say go to church every Sunday, give money to all kinds of good charities. It did not say that. It says those who trust Christ as their savior, which, which means this. If you've kind of held that off and you've kind of played around with that or whatever, my dear friend, you are playing with fire. You want to be there. I'm, I'm saying to you, you want to be there in God's heaven someday. You do. I'm not asking if you do. I'm telling you, you do. You do. If you say, well, I'll take my chances. Do not be, do not be that foolish. Take your chances with what? You don't do that in any other area of your life. You don't. None of you. I hear people say, I'll take my chances. Think, are you kidding me? Do you do that when you think about retirement? Well, why would I save up for that? I'll just take my chances. Really? You don't do that. No. Healthcare? Why would I buy healthcare or health, health insurance? I'll just take my chances. Well, some of you do that. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to travel to New York. I don't need reservations or money. I'll take my chances. I mean, come on. You don't do that. You don't do that. You plan. You think ahead. You study a map. You read the directions. You Wikipedia it. Come on. You do something. I know you do. Why would, why would you... Why would you play with forever? I, I fail to understand that. Why would you put off trusting Christ as your Savior? Wow. Christ, the Lamb of God, will be worshipped forever as the one who died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead. Have on your study sheet here some words about the angels. They're there. They're described in Revelation 5. They're described uh, Peter will say, I give you the reference there, that as the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection unfolded, the angels, it says, longed to look into what was going on. Matthew 26, Jesus said an angel army was ready to deliver him at a moment's notice. I think the angels here in Revelation 5 are ecstatic. I do. Because they were the ones who watched this plan unfold. The angels of heaven were the ones who watched as Jesus left the glory of heaven, took on a human form, and came down, came down to this earth. They were watching this. The angels of God were those who watched the Son of God. They knew who he was, mistreated by creatures that he had created. They were watching this. And I can just picture, and again, I don't know what angels look like. The, the you know, white robes, and I, I don't know. Saber rattling. I mean, if I'm an angel with a big sword, I'm saying, can I, can I take care of these Little creatures, you know, one little stamp on my foot, and we'll take care of this whole thing. Jesus said, as, as he wrestled with the cross before he went there, do you not think that right now I couldn't call legions of angels to destroy this world and set me free? Do, do you think I couldn't do that? Just be done. No, no more of this. All these people thumbing their nose at heaven, seriously? Squash them right now. Do you think I couldn't do that? He, he, he could have. And he didn't. He didn't. Jesus said, how then would the scripture be fulfilled? So he went to the cross. It's the whole message of the Bible. He went to the cross. He didn't have to. He went to the cross so you could have your sins paid for, be forgiven by God, and be with him someday. Man, that is amazing. That is amazing love. Amazing kindness of the God who knows your name, made you on purpose, knows how much carbon you're taking up, and is letting you live anyway. 
That's amazing love. It's amazing. Now, on your study sheet there, a couple of things under responding to God's word. Uh, Those are word for word, pretty much what I gave you last week as we looked at Palm Sunday. But I'm asking you to think about this from a personal angle, not just history. The Bible isn't given to us just so that we'll be better informed about things. It's written for your faith and for you to respond to God. So I'm asking you here, I mean, do you see it? Do you see this? The message of the Bible, that Christ died on the cross for your sins. Those nails were yours. That death penalty was what you deserve. And the Bible calls every one of us, every one of us, uh, to say, God, I, I, I fess up. I agree. I'm that sinner. That's me. God calls every one of us to say, I believe Jesus died on the cross in my place. I got all kinds of questions about it, but I believe it's true. And he rose from the dead, and I'm trusting him and him alone. I, I don't get why you would not do that. I do not understand. Why would you not trust Christ? Why would you not take care of eternity? Because God has already taken care of it for you. So I ask you to think about that. Christ, your sin bearer. And then a, a note as well. Sometimes when people follow the path of, of Jesus, somewhere along the way, I, I don't know, maybe this isn't you. We maybe get a little impressed with ourselves and our good behavior. And we start thinking the little bit of heaven is, is maybe, you know, due to how good we are. And I'm just saying, okay, stop that right now. You're not that good. Um, still pretty messed up, still needing a savior. Every bit of heaven that comes your direction is by his mercy alone. You have no room to take any credit. Just a little reminder to us. Everyone in this room can say, thank you, God, for what you've done. Thank you. Every one of us needs just as much saving as anybody else. Every one of us, every one of us needs his help today and tomorrow. We do. Now, I want to pray for us. And in that moment, as I pray, maybe that's the moment when you will say yes to, to God. Maybe that's the moment when you'll do it. You'll stop your fooling around. You'll put the stiff arm down. And you'll say, today's the day, Easter 2018. I'm going to trust Christ as my Savior today. No fancy words needed. Just you talking to God. God, I believe this. I do. I believe it. Let me pray for us. Father, we're asking for a work that is yours to do and yours alone. None of us, by any of our fancy talking, can can call forth faith in any other person. But I pray that you would do that. Father, by the Spirit of God, using the Word of God, that you would prompt our hearts together, every one of us, to say, yes, 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 I do believe Jesus died for my sins. Yes, I believe he rose from the dead. I'm going to set aside all my objections and all kinds of other things, and and I'm going to trust Christ. I'm going to. Today's the day. Our Father, would you do that? Do that work in us. Thank you for Easter morning. Thank you for a risen Savior who conquered our worst enemy, death itself, one day to be with you. Thank you for this, your word. In Jesus' name, amen.